You want to get out your sermon outline. I'm just going to move that down there. Have that to follow along. If you're uh, new or visiting with us uh, today, there is a uh, tear-off response card in the bulletin. You can uh, fill that out and give that to me uh, after the service. That would be great and get a chance to meet you. Um, we are missing a ton of people today. Is it just the cold, or is it the Valentine's recovery thing? It's just the cold, huh? Okay. So, it, uh, it was cold. It was, uh, my thing said, five degrees this morning. So... I'm sure that's related to the massive amount of sin here. So, yeah, I am, I am not a winter person. So I'm, you know, when everybody else is melting in the summer, I'm like loving that. I think that's awesome. So, it's, I, I, people say I have it backwards, and that may be. Either way, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And, uh, we're going to look at the first six verses today. This is a great uh, statement teaching about our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it comes to us at the beginning of Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. And please listen carefully, as this is the Word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as the Son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we do need it. We need it as much as the first people who heard it needed it. We lack confidence and hope, and we're focused on ourselves so often and so much that we forget Jesus. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would take this word and press it home into our hearts and make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have to ask you this morning if you remember the Old Testament story of the Exodus. And uh, if you don't, I will sort of go over the highlights uh, for you. The Exodus was uh, the first of two defining moments in the history of ancient Israel, the other being the exile. The Exodus is the miraculous migration of the people of God who've been led by Moses, freed from slavery in Egypt, and headed out for the promised land. Perhaps you've seen the movie. It all began with the Passover when Israel lay asleep with the pleasing aroma of roast lamb hanging protectively over them and the lamb's blood on the doorway signifying a chosen people. And the destroyer struck down all the firstborn of Egypt 
and a mournful wail rose from every Egyptian house. It's the end of 430 years of bondage in Egypt. So the Pharaoh summoned Moses and commanded Israel to leave his land, and they left it dawn, and a great thing happened as they entered the wilderness. This immense pillar of cloud formed before them to lead the way, and at night it became a pillar of fire to light up the night sky. And then, of course, came the ill-fated pursuit of Pharaoh to trap the Hebrews against the sea, but the pillar protected them. A dry path uh, was opened through the sea for God's people to follow, and it closed up on Pharaoh's armies. And so they began, and it was a great beginning. At this point, the hopes and expectations of the people must have been a mile high. And soon they'd be in the promised land and they would forever enter their rest. And it all began so well. And it all ended so poorly. Of the approximately 600,000 men who began so well, only two over the age of 20 ever made it to the promised land. And that was over 40 years later. The rest died in the desert as a direct result of their disobedience to God and their failure to follow and worship him only. And the grand and terrible lesson of ancient Israel's history is that it is possible to begin well and end poorly. And yet it's the same concern that haunts the writer to these Hebrew Christians. Yes, they had started well, but how would they finish? Would they return to the legalism of Judaism and, in a sense, go back to Egypt? They're struggling, they're scared, they're persecuted, they're suffering, they're tired, and they just want to go back. <coughs> or would they persevere under the lordship of Jesus Christ and go on to enter their rest, a very real sense, their promised land? Did they really believe that Jesus is better? That's the issue that lies before them as we begin Hebrews 3. But there's one other issue that you have to understand if you're going to get this passage. And that's simply, why is Moses so important? Why is Moses so important? As we've already seen in our study of Hebrews, this book is all about establishing and demonstrating that Jesus is better. We saw in chapters 1 and 2 that he's better than the Old Testament prophets, and the angels who serve God's people, and coming in chapters 4 and 5, he'll be shown as better than Joshua and Aaron. And throughout the rest of the book, the author is going to portray his sacrifice in the new covenant that he establishes <coughs> excuse me, as better than all of the sacrifices, all the animal sacrifices, everything of the old covenant uh, in the Old Testament. So, here in Hebrews 3, his aim is to demonstrate now that Jesus is better than Moses. Although, when you think about it, Abraham and David, two critically important people in the Old Testament. Some of the prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, Daniel, larger-than-life figures. But no one in the Old Testament is greater than Moses. If you had to list sort of the most influential uh, people over the history of ancient Israel, it'd be Moses and probably then followed by Abraham and David. And you could argue over the order, but they're like the big three. 
And uh, Moses is a national hero. He's sort of the architect of all of Israel's corporate life. Moses was born to Hebrew parents. According to Exodus 7, he's 80 years old when the Exodus occurs. He's the third child in his family. Uh, Aaron was approximately three when Moses is born, and his sister, his older sister Miriam, um, who often corrects him, as older sisters sometimes do, and I hope mine doesn't listen to this podcast. Um, she's probably in her early teens when he's born. And he's described as a beautiful child in Acts 7. So you know the story of Moses was placed in a basket uh, after he was born and uh, set afloat down the, the river. And by the way, the Hebrew word translated basket is used in only one other place in all of the Old Testament. It's actually used in Genesis with reference to Noah's Ark. And there's an obvious parallel between the two. Both are God's appointed means of salvation. Both are preserved from the waters of destruction by an ark. Uh, the biggest difference is Noah's Ark was huge, and Moses' basket was small. Um, and uh, Noah's Ark came with a rudder and a steersman to keep it on course, whereas the ark in which Moses was placed is providentially steered by God himself. Now, a lot of people are disturbed by this image of Moses' mother taking this course of action and putting her baby in a basket and sending him uh, downstream. And uh, it's sort of the ancient equivalent of leaving a child on the steps of a hospital or an orphanage. Women frequently came to the banks of the river uh, to wash clothes, to bathe, uh, to get water to cook, and releasing Moses along the shoreline is the most likely way that she could entrust him to the care of someone else. Now, we know she also followed him so she could see who got him, and uh, it was Pharaoh's daughter and uh, who, who pulls him out of the river. Tradition has given her the name of uh, Bithia. Uh, we don't really know. We don't know her identity with any degree of certainty, but uh, she providentially immediately hires Moses' mom as the nanny, so to speak. And uh, uh, Moses was probably nursed by his biological mother, for some two years. And the name Moses is Egyptian for son, or one who was born of, but Exodus 2 tells us it also sounds like the Hebrew word to draw out. So we have all this background of Moses, and we also see in his life that he is a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus, especially in all the circumstances surrounding his birth. Moses and Jesus are both God's appointed means to bring about deliverance and redemption for God's people. They're both threatened by a ruling monarch. Pharaoh threatened Moses and Herod threatened Jesus. In both cases, the attempts to kill him is that first secret, and then having failed, public steps are taken to get rid of the child. In both cases, Moses Jesus survive, while other infants are slaughtered. The parents of Moses deliver him from Egypt, whereas the parents of Jesus deliver him into Egypt. Perhaps the most important passage in the Old Testament that tells us how highly God regarded Moses, how close his relationship was with Moses, is found in Numbers chapter 12. There we read of God's rebuke of Aaron and Miriam, his older brother and sister. 
and uh, basically they're complaining, they're very jealous of the authority and power that God has given Moses, and they're saying, hey, what about us? You know, we're the older brother and sister, you should listen to what we have to say too. And you know, Moses is important to God when you complain about Moses, and then God shows up. So be very careful about, you know, picking, complaining about God's prophet, um, because he might show up. And he does, in Numbers 12, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So, Moses is God's man in ancient Israel. So with all that background before us, let's ready to look at this argument in Hebrews 3. Here it's fairly straightforward. There are several points in the text. Establishing the superiority of Jesus to Moses. And we're going to focus in just on sort of two big uh, points today. First, we see that the person of Jesus is greater. The person of Jesus is greater. It says, starting at verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So we start with this twofold description of the readers, and it makes it clear they're converted people, they are believers. Holy brothers could only be applied to people in the family of God, set apart by the grace of God. And the, the fact that the writer is referring to people in the church, the body of Christ, clear from his use of the phrase, you who share in a heavenly calling. You can uh, apply that to an unconverted Jew or Gentile. Um, so, and the word translated here as share is also translated as partners in Luke 5, where it's talking about all the uh, fishermen who are going to be called uh, as apostles. And it says they signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. It's describing the relationship of men in the fishing business and that they're all in this together. So true Christians not only share in the heavenly calling, but they also share in Christ himself. Uh, later on uh, in this chapter, in verse 14, it says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're told in Ephesians 5, we're members of his body. And not only do we share in Christ, we also share in the Holy Spirit. In chapter 6, we'll read, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. And because we're God's children, we also partake in the uh, loving discipline of God the Father. All the way out to Hebrews 12, we read, If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So not being disciplined is evidence that a person is not one of God's children. So they share in Christ, they share in the Holy Spirit, and they share in the love and discipline of God the Father. 
And because these people are holy brothers and sisters, and they share in the heavenly calling, they're able to share um, their confession of their faith in Jesus Christ. It says they share in the heavenly calling. Now the word confession simply means to say the same thing. So when uh, teaching elders, pastors, or ruling elders uh, are ordained, we have to uh, subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know, and any officer, any deacon or elder or, or pastor. And what we're saying is we agree. We're saying the same thing about what we believe. And uh, so all true Christians say the same thing when it comes to their salvation. And two more times in uh, this epistle, in Hebrews 4 and 10, the writer exhorts the Hebrew believers to hold fast to this confession, to the fact that we agree, that we say the same thing about our salvation. Now, it's not Moses who did all this for the people being written to in Hebrews. It was Jesus. The writer doesn't exhort them to consider Moses, but to consider Jesus. The word means to consider carefully, to understand fully. It's not a quick glance at Jesus. It's a careful consideration of who he is and what he's done. And that Christ is superior to Moses in his person is a fact. It's plainly obvious. Moses is a mere man called to be a prophet and a leader and a great man, but Jesus is the Son of God sent by the Father into the world. And the title apostle we see here means one sent with a commission. Moses was called and commissioned by God, but Jesus uh, was sent as God's last word, his living word, for sinful men and women. Twelve times in the Gospel of John, Jesus is referred to as sent from God. So Jesus Christ is not only the apostle, but he's also the high priest. We read there, <clears throat> now Moses is a prophet who occasionally served this priest, but he was never the high priest. That title belonged to his brother Aaron. In fact, Jesus Christ has the title Great High Priest. Again, we find that in uh, Hebrews 4. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So as the apostle, Jesus Christ is representing God to men. And as high priest, he now represents men to God. So it's a two-way communication with Jesus at the center. Now Moses, of course, fulfills similar responsibilities. He taught God's truth. He prayed for God's people uh, when he met God on the mountain, Exodus 32. He was primarily the messenger of God's law. And Christ is the messenger of God's grace. We see that primarily in John 1, where it says the law was given through Moses, grace and truth. Uh, came through Jesus Christ. So Moses helps prepare the way for the coming of the Savior to the world. So the first thing we see is the person of Jesus is greater. The second thing we see is that the work of Jesus is greater. So person and work of Jesus is greater, starting at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. This word house is used six times in this passage. And it's not referring to a building, it's referring to the people of God. Moses ministered to Israel, the people of God under the old covenant. Jesus ministers to his church, people of God under the new covenant. But how exactly is Jesus' work greater than Moses' work? Well, there are several obvious ways. First, while Moses served as a prophet, Jesus is the true prophet, the greatest prophet. God communicated uh, directly with Moses, who then communicated God's word to his people. And when Aaron and Miriam complained about Moses' role, as we read, God himself explained things in Numbers 12, and he said, Moses is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. We would say today face to face. Um, And he beholds the form of the Lord. That's really significant because nobody did that. Uh, If they did, it was usually, you know, immediately face in the dirt, please don't kill me. Um, So we read about people who said, you know, I saw God the other day. Um, It doesn't match what we see in the Bible. When people see God in the Bible, it's face in the dirt. Please don't kill me. Over and over and over again. They never say, hey, good to see you. Glad you're here. That doesn't happen. But Moses beholds the form of the Lord. It's very significant. Only Adam before the fall knew God more closely than Moses did. Moses is a great prophet, blessed by God. But now we have Jesus as a greater prophet. His is the complete and best and final communication. This book started with a statement in Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's huge. So we have God's written prophecy in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, which teach us about Christ. We have Jesus' words himself in John 5, where he says, If you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. Christ is the greatest prophet, for by his word and by his spirit, he communicates God's will to his people both then and now. But not only is he a greater prophet, he's a greater priest. Moses is an advocate for the Hebrew people. His brother Aaron is the first officially ordained priest, but Moses was the true advocate with God. He's the one who went before God on behalf of his people. Pretty much every time they screwed up, which was often, um, it was Moses who went and pleaded with God. You remember they built the golden calf. That didn't end well. And it was Moses who went and prayed for him, interceded with God, and obtained pardon for the people. So he functions as a priest and advocate for his people, so much so that Exodus 33 tells us, you get that sense of how much uh, Moses is God's man. We read there, it says, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. 
So if you went to the tent to seek the Lord, you'd just go to the tent. When Moses went to the tent, the whole nation got up and stood outside their own individual tents, their own homes, and watched as Moses walked into the tent. Because he's God's man. But while Moses stands as an advocate for his people, Jesus Christ stands as a greater advocate, as our great high priest. He's faithfully interceding before us today in heaven before the throne of the Father. Hebrews 7 teaches us the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our great high priest, our advocate, our mediator. He bridges the gap between God and man. He allows us to enter in to the presence of God in worship and praise to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. So he's the greatest prophet. He's the greatest priest. And third, while Moses is the great lawgiver, Christ is the king. To the Hebrew people, the law is the greatest thing in the world. The law came through Moses. Moses gave him the Ten Commandments, the laws in Leviticus, the sacrificial laws, the ceremonial laws, the civil laws, and the tabernacle. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, commonly called the law. And everything in the Hebrew religion recalls his name because it all comes from the law of Moses. But what purpose does the law serve? Well, Galatians 3 says the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That's the purpose of the law, to lead us to Christ. Galatians 3 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Christ doesn't abolish the law, he fulfills the law, he stands not merely as the lawgiver, but as the law keeper. And he's now the king. He doesn't just give us the law, but he himself keeps the law and then applies it to our lives so it could reveal our sins and shortcomings, so that we could see our need for forgiveness and be driven to Christ in search of salvation. And Christ, as our king, is able to forgive us and save us from our sins and free us from condemnation. And he now lives and reigns as Lord and Savior and as our sovereign King, to whom we owe all of our allegiance now and forever. And then finally, while Moses was their deliverer, Christ is our Redeemer. It's a big difference. Moses is the deliverer of his people. There was this unparalleled display of power. Exodus 7-12 through 12 tells us the whole story. The Nile turns to blood. There's these great plagues of frogs and gnats and flies that swarm over Egypt. There's hail. Boils come to afflict men and beasts. And on the dark night of the Passover, all the firstborn children who are not under the blood of the Lamb perish. And Exodus 14 tells us that Moses parted the Red Sea with his staff and all the people passed through in Exodus 17, Moses hit the rock with his staff, 
and all Israel drank. Tremendous power and deliverance radiates out of Moses' life. <coughs> Excuse me. But then look at Christ. Moses delivers his people from external things. Christ redeems his people primarily from internal sin. Also external things. But there's a big difference between deliverance and redemption. Moses let his people deliver them from the wrath of Pharaoh. Christ redeems his people and saves them from the wrath of God and the punishment of hell. And to do it, he faithfully submitted himself to the will of the Father, suffering terribly, but never giving in to sin. He faithfully went to the cross. He faithfully submitted to the nails. He faithfully became sin for us as wave after wave of uh, our sin, of the world's sin, of all believers' sin, of all time, is poured over his sinless soul. All the lies, all the murders, all the pride, greed, envy, hatred is poured over him. So that finally we're told in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, Moses is the shadow of salvation. Christ is the substance of salvation. He is our Redeemer. And the contrast couldn't be more clear here in Hebrews 3. It tells us Moses is a servant in the house. Jesus is a son over the house. Moses is a member of the household of God. But Jesus built the house. By the way, there's another truth. We're not going to spend any time, but there's a powerful argument here for the deity of Jesus Christ. If God built all things and Jesus built God's house, then Jesus must be God. Now, the Greek word here translated servant in verse 5 is not the usual New Testament word for servant. It carries the meaning of a voluntary servant who acts because of his affection. It's referring to a servant who chooses to serve you out of his love for you. And in the New Testament, it is only used of Moses. The beginning of his ministry, Moses was hesitant. He resisted God's call. He said, not me, I can't do it, pick Aaron. And God said, no, it's going to be you. I'll let Aaron do some of the talking, but you're the man. And once he gave in to that, he surrendered that, he obeyed that. Uh, he continued his whole life to obey out of love and devotion. Now the writer here of Hebrews notes that uh, both Moses and Jesus were faithful in the work God gave him to do. Moses wasn't sinless as Jesus was, but he was faithful and he obeyed God's will, as we saw in Numbers 12, where it said, he's faithful in my house. This should be an encouragement to these first century Hebrew believers to remain faithful to Christ, even in the midst of the tough trials they're experiencing, because they now know that Christ is the son over the house, so instead of going back to Moses, they should imitate Moses and be faithful to their calling to be a servant in the house. Perhaps we need the same thing. We look at Jesus, but we don't really see him. We don't see the greatness of his person. 
We don't see the greatness of his work. We don't see him as the son of God who's over the house of God. We don't see him as the great hope of the Christian faith. Titus 2, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we just don't see him at all. And when that happens, our hope needs to be greater. Look at the very end of verse 6. Our hope needs to be greater. It says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. It's an interesting sentence. The if clause, if we indeed, or if indeed we hold fast, has to be understood in light of the total context of Hebrews, which is Moses leading Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. The writer's not suggesting that we have to keep ourselves saved. That would contradict the major theme of the book, which is the finished work of Christ, his heavenly ministry guaranteeing our eternal security and salvation. The writer is affirming that those who hold fast their confidence and their hope are proving that they are saved, that they are true Christians. They really do belong uh, to Christ and they're part of his house. And that word confidence literally means um, what we would call freedom of speech or openness. When you're free to speak, there's no fear. You have confidence. A believer can come with boldness, the same root word as confidence, to the throne of grace with openness and freedom and not be afraid. So we read again in Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We have this boldness because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we're not supposed to cast away our confidence. We shouldn't give up our boldness, no matter what our circumstances might be, no matter how difficult our situation is. And because we don't have confidence in ourselves, and we don't have confidence in our situation or our circumstances. It's too prone for us to fail. It's too prone for our situation to get hard. But we have confidence in Jesus who never fails us. And because of this confidence in Christ and our confession of Christ, then we can experience hope and joy. The writer is exhorting these suffering saints to enjoy their spiritual life as a follower of Jesus. They're not simply just to endure it. Jesus is the beloved son over his house. He'll care for every member of the family. He's the faithful high priest who provides all the grace that we need for each and every demand on our life. As the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus is using um, the experience of his people's lives to equip them for service to glorify his name. In other words, those who have trusted Christ prove this confession by their steadfastness, their confidence, and their hope. They're not burdened by the past or scared uh, by the present, but they're living in the future tense as they await the blessed hope of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's this heavenly calling that motivates them to keep on living for Jesus even when the going gets tough. Now you think about it, to the Hebrew people, Moses is the greatest. 
According to one early Hebrew tradition, Moses was given a higher rank and privilege than the angels. The book, book of Deuteronomy ends with this statement about Moses. It says the very end of the book, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Now seeing the great respect the Jews gave to Moses, then we can better understand why the writer here in Hebrews 3 is going to great lengths to show that Christ is greater than Moses. Some of those beleaguered Hebrew Christians are going back to Judaism because they don't understand the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't realize that while Moses was a servant in the house, um, that Christ is the Son of God. While Moses was in the house, Christ was Lord over the house. This is why this passage opened back in verse 1 with a command to carefully consider Jesus. Some versions say, fix your thoughts on Jesus. It's only here in the book of Hebrews that Christ is called the apostle and high priest to signify to those frightened believers there's no one greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think back to the Exodus, the wandering of Israel in the wilderness, in the desert. It's a major topic. It constantly referred back to in the book of Hebrews. And there were two men in that nation, Caleb and Joshua, who illustrate the attitude that's described in verse 6. Numbers 14 shows us that everybody else in Israel over the age of 20 was to die in the desert and never enter the promised land. But Caleb and Joshua believed God and God honored their faith. For 40 years, Caleb and Joshua watched their friends and relatives die. But these two men of faith had confidence in God's word that will one day enter Canaan. While others are experiencing sorrow and death, Caleb and Joshua rejoice in confident hope. And that's what we're called to. As believers, we know that God is going to take us to heaven and he's preparing a new heaven and earth. And we should, our lives should reveal, like Caleb and Joshua, this same kind of confident hope. But the reality is most people don't have that kind of confident hope. So they try to create their own version. It usually amounts to a form of self-confidence and false hope. And at some point, for most people, it usually falls apart. The most recent version of this is with Brian Williams, the anchorman of NBC Nightly News. My friend uh, Mike Kanjin, who spoke here last May, he wrote Brian Williams an open letter yesterday. And I want to quote from it because I think it reveals some of the truth of our passage and how to apply it. He writes, Dear Brian, I want to take a moment to write and offer thoughts on the recent events in your very high profile in public life. One can't imagine the constant scrutiny you must constantly live under in your position. So first, we like you a lot. We probably don't share your politics and our convictions may not fully align, but you possess a unique gift that transcends alignment. 
We watch NBC News chiefly because of how personally and humanly you deliver the day's events. We love how you enter into stories, and particularly the more heartwarming ones. Only this week we learned that you are younger than we are. For whatever reason, I've always assumed our news anchor would be older than I am, like presidents and Sunday school teachers. Hey, I'm a pastor. We have written a letter to NBC on your behalf with hopes that you will be restored after your suspension. We hope this because we live in a largely graceless world. David Brooks has written beautifully to this in his New York Times article, The Act of Rigorous Forgiving. And I echo his sentiments, and NBC has the rare opportunity to do what many have failed or refused to do with past failures, and that is to say with their actions that redemption is better than perfection. Redemption is better than perfection. And that along with justice, mercy, and forgiveness are indispensable to human flourishing. You have an opportunity as well, Brian. I have no idea what drove you to lie, but I hope you'll deal with it for you. I hope you'll do the hard, brutal, and agonizing work of facing your demons, acknowledging your failures, and admitting whatever is true. I offer this as an insider to human failure due to my own sin. If you do this, regardless of what comes of your life professionally, you will heal. Because whatever success we realize or heights we scale, we bring our brokenness with us. Our stories follow us. We're always more than what others see from the outside. And you are more than the sum total of your public persona, and this transcends whether or not you are restored. To discover or rediscover this is to be free. Hey, Brian, what you have done is not remotely the end of the world. But hoping it will all go away without the hard and painful work of deep self-reflection and healing, sort of is. So whether or not you're restored to your former position, we can't wait to see how the broken pieces of your life come together in a narrative that is far more real and compelling than ones that come from hiding and fear. So I read that, and I thought, what about us? What about you? What are you going to do with your Brian Williams moment? What are you going to do when your sin has been revealed? Or your ego has been crushed? Or your suffering has gotten too intense? Or your relationships have broken down? At those times, are you really going to believe that Jesus is the greatest one of all? Is the book of Hebrews starting to break through? Is Hebrews starting to convince you that Jesus is better? So the question remains then, now that you know all this about Jesus, that he's the greatest one of all, that Jesus is better, what are you going to do about it? Will you be content to let it remain head knowledge? Or will you allow him into your life, particularly into the broken places and the wounded places and the sinful places? Because the issue is not just knowing who Christ is, but knowing Christ and having a relationship with him. For those of you here this morning, and I don't know everybody here, but those of you uh, here this morning who don't know Christ in a personal way, I encourage you, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Leave your life of sin behind. Ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. 
Receive him into your heart by faith. For those of you who do know Christ, do the same thing. Come back to Christ and leave your life of sin behind. Trust Christ again by grace, through faith. Come to Christ, say, I do believe, help my unbelief. Mike closes his letter to Brian Williams by writing this. I would be remiss uh, by failing to say that as Christ's followers, the God we worship is one who rather than avoid our brokenness, entered into it, into the dark places we hide, where we really live, and where we are most wounded and insecure in order to redeem us and make us whole. For this reason, our message is called Good News, because it is. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you that you have given him to us as our true King and our perfect prophet and our great high priest. Drive these truths deep into our hearts. And no matter what goes on in our life, make our hearts believe that Jesus is better. Amen. We have four men who are beginning officer training today uh, that you nominated. God's blessing to us, coming to us again from the book of Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God bless you. We'll see you next week.